You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, queers. Welcome to our penultimate episode of season two. We are here this week with guests Ayla Sunshi Sullivan, Nick Hadikwa Maluko, and Roger Q. Mason from the New Visions Fellowship. Hey everyone, welcome to Thesis on Joan. I'm Megan, she, her. I'm Holly, they, them. Thesis on Joan is a podcast dedicated to amplifying voices from the LGBTQ plus community in the New York performing arts scene and examining the industry from a queer perspective. Join fan queers and theater professionals, me and Holly, as we sit down with groundbreaking theater folk from Brooklyn cabaret performers to people backstage and on Broadway. For many queers, theater has been an escape. This podcast looks to have open conversations on where we've come from and where we're headed as a community while queering the canon along the way. Hi, Megan. Hey. So, yeah, I wanted to check in with you about, you know, theater, live theater has been back for a couple months now, indoor theater, um, and some Broadway shows are back, off-Broadway shows are back, and, you know, just wondering, like, how has the last year and a half plus uh like affected how you your relationship with theater how you see theater how you want to see theater yeah it's like a good question i feel like it changes like it's continuing to change mm-hmm. um i'll be curious to hear what you think but like i feel like this past week was the first week where i was really like oh i want to go see some stuff and i think that may have been because we were looking at all the things that our previous guests are doing mm mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, okay, the people I'm excited about are out in the world and making theater again. But there's still not like an urgency there for me, even though I know some things are limited. Um, and I think the financial component of it too is like a little overwhelming to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now that I don't work in the theater industry, I'm less likely to like get a comp offer or get like, you know, invited by somebody else or something like that. But yeah, I'm, I feel like a little out of touch, honestly. Like, I feel like I keep up with the artists and the theaters that I really enjoy. But like, as a whole, I feel like more and more people are telling me things that I didn't know that are happening in the Broadway, off-Broadway world when normally I'd be like, oh yeah, I know about that. You know, (laughs) it's like, it's not a bad thing to have to, to be able to have extra space in my brain for other things, but I am starting to get the feeling again that I'm like missing stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's still not the urgency or like, um, like financial comfort to like go after every show that I necessarily want to see. 
Yeah. I don't know. How are you feeling? Yeah. No, I feel that a lot too, especially around the financial stuff. Like I think for the last, even before the pandemic, I was only seeing things if I got comps or like really discounted tickets because seeing theater is very expensive and it's a huge privilege. And, you know, working in the theater, you do get a lot of discounts and comps, which is really great. Um, But then you end up seeing, I think, things that you necessarily wouldn't want to see or like sure. or aren't the top of your list, I guess. Um And yeah, but I do feel having been away from theater so much the last year and a half, I'm a little like, I'm going to see what I want to see and prioritize, you know, my safety and right. Yeah. Like having a budget where I'm like, Oh, right. I can only pay to see like a show or two shows a month. I'm like, going to be really careful about what I choose um, mm-hmm. and support like the artists and the theaters that I feel like are doing the kind of work I want to see. Yeah. It definitely makes you think about what your money is going towards and what you said about safety too. Like um, we're planning to go see Javi's play uh, Luciana Gas mm-hmm. with National Queer Theater. And like, there's no like, hesitation to me at all knowing that like that organization is going to be extremely diligent about like making sure everyone feels safe and like in a protected environment like in more ways than just COVID related you Mm -hmm. know and um I don't know if I can think of any other thing currently happening that I'm going to feel the same way Mm -hmm. at you know so that's that is a consideration as well yeah. I feel like a lot of the shows I'm excited or would want to see are not in New York City right now. Like, mm-hmm. I'd love to see Lady Dane's performance. Mm-hmm. Um, Wooly Mammoth is doing some really cool stuff. Their whole season is awesome. Right? I know. Yeah. Uh, we've already talked about doing a prom tour road trip. Yep. <laughs> and Oklahoma. And Oklahoma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to. I can't wait to see Miss Hazel's The Regulars in in Manchester, the UK. <laughs> yep, all of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think I don't know. Maybe COVID like allowed us to expand like the theater nexus and where we think of like New York is the greatest city for theater to be so much wider than that because you know theater has always been existing and great in places other than New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just so it's inaccessible to a lot of folks to see all the different places. I would love that because I feel like decentralizing the like theater nexus in America is just good for everybody, right. <laughs> like artists. And because I, I think something that we've all seen happen this past year, I mean, we're both still in New York and I'm happy I'm still here. That's for sure. But, um, you know, a lot of people were not happy here and they had the opportunity to leave. But a lot of times it meant leaving like the industry that they really loved and cared about. Mm-hmm. So the more we can like spread it out across the country, the more audience that get to see theater, the more artists that get to live in places that they can afford and feel comfortable in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. There's there's a lot of benefit to that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my like, skepticism with theater started, you know, way before the pandemic as well. But I think I'm like cautiously optimistic that things could change and that I guess there's like less room for white folks and people in power to be like, Oh, we didn't know. Or, yeah, you know, we're, we're doing this like performative thing and people have more agency now to like call that out. 
I hope, Mm -hmm. and actually make some kind of bigger change. Right. See these like PR stunts for what they are. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about like accessibility because my partner has some accessibility needs for theater and that really like cuts off a lot of the cheaper ticket options for us. Like Mm. if we, if you win the lottery or if you do rush, like you don't really get to choose where your seats are. Right. uh, Or comps. Or even if you actually have a seat. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And so, you know, folks with disabilities can't take advantage of those cheaper tickets. And, you know, sometimes I've had luck like calling the folks and being like, Hey, we need these accommodations. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll make it happen, but a lot of times they'll just be like, Oh, sorry. And the tickets go to somebody else. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I hope that changes too, <laughs> but it's like so much oh. extra labor to make that happen. You know, that's a whole conversation. Yeah. <laughs> we can. Yeah. So I think that like my tolerance for like dealing with that bullshit is also much lower now. There doesn't seem to be much of an urgency around that inclusivity mm-hmm. for Broadway theaters anyway. Like for, I don't know, we've talked about this with the like language access. Mm-hmm. It's only because there's like a price tag, you know, you're now accessing more audiences who aren't necessarily English language speakers because you have this app, even though the app was created for people who have like hearing needs or hearing loss. But I feel like for, mobility or anything like that. Like there's no way that they found a way to incentivize it for the, t- like their pockets. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's never going to be a priority. And yeah, I don't know. That's extremely frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll see what this next year brings and, you know, I think keep, keep pushing, keep fighting back. And I think for folks in power, just keep listening and learning and, Mm-hmm. you know, make changes where you can. Uh, and I think people are a lot more empowered than, than they think they are. I feel like to that point too, I don't know what you've kind of witnessed from folks who are going to theater. Like I, I think most people I know who are actively going to theater again are going to off Broadway or off, off Broadway. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think it's going to be a really hard year for Broadway shows and they're going to have to like, do some rethinking Mm -hmm. because when you're stuck with an audience that's very local, like, like, Oh no, you suddenly have to serve the people who actually live in your city. Mm. (laughs) Like, I don't know. What is that going to mean for Broadway? If anything? Yeah. I was really surprised that Dana H and is this a room that's Mm -hmm. posted their early closing notice? I guess not surprised, but like saddened to see that that happened so quickly. Yeah. It was like early closing, but then they did the, they extended to the end of the month. Mm-hmm. So they have a little bit more time, but, uh, that, and those are two of the shows that I really want to see. And I'm like stressed because it's such a short amount of time and I don't necessarily have the money to like shell out, you know, for two mm-hmm. different tickets, but like all the rhetoric around like the closing notice is like, well, of course we expected this because it's like, and it's like, well, why does this model even exist then if we can't have shows like this and they can be somewhat successful, you know, like mm-hmm. we just, like Miss Hazel is saying, we just need to rethink the way that we do plays and short run things here mm-hmm. in the U.S. Yeah. I did see, I just saw last night, um, Sweatshop Overlord, Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord, right. and it's so much fun. It is a little 
traumatizing, triggering because <laughs> it goes, it goes through the pandemic. It starts in March, 2020 and goes up until like September of last of this year. Uh, and she starts out and she gives a bunch of trigger warnings and then she's like, mm-hmm. all right, let's go back to March, 2020. And I felt like my whole body just have like, like, a, oh my God, like a, a fight or flight kind of response right. of like, no, no, thank you. I I'm fine right here. Like this isn't a good place, but it's better than there. <laughs> and you're like, this is not why I go to theater yeah. <laughs> to get taken back to like these horrific moments. It, it but, felt so yeah. fresh, but like, I think it was helpful to process everything that's happened. And she goes like all the, the big news stories she goes through and kind of like projects like, Oh, and now, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies. And now, uh, Oh, the, there's a coup at the Capitol, like all those things. And it was like, Oh my God, like, we lived through that in the last year and a half. Like that's so wild that all those things just kept piling up. And I, like I had such sense memory of like where I was when all those things happened. And, uh, but she's, she's so funny. She's a comedian. So it also like helped me, uh, have some like levity around those things. And there's also like a lot of rage and that also felt great (laughs) of being like, yes, we can be fucking outraged about what our government has done and what the people in this country have been doing. And that all felt very cathartic and you're laughing a lot through the whole show. So highly recommend it. Uh, it's playing through November 21st. So get your tickets. Go see it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's on my list too. Yeah. So many time constraints, <laughs> but yeah. It sounds so good. So for this week's Action of the Ep, we're encouraging everyone to sign up for a free training with the organization Hollaback. Their mission is to end harassment in all its forms by transforming the culture that perpetuates hate and harassment. They carry out this mission by building the power of everyday people to create safe and welcoming environments for all. So their free trainings include bystander intervention, conflict de-escalation, responding to and preventing harassment, and resilience trainings. Bystander trainings include interventions to police-sponsored violence and anti-Black racist harassment, anti-LGBTQ plus harassment, anti-Asian American and xenophobic harassment, and more. Check out their site and register for a training today. They're free. Uh, I've taken a couple of them. They're really great, and they make you feel uh, more empowered to, if you see something happening that you know what to do and, like, actions you can take. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Uh, this week we have three special guests. Uh, they're all from the National Queer Theater and Dramatist Guild's partnership with the New Vision Fellowship. So, uh, welcome Ayla Sanchi Sullivan, Nick Kadikwa Maluko, and Roger Q. Mason. And here's a little bit more about them. Ayla Sanchi Sullivan, they, them, is just your friendly neighborhood black, Vietnamese, queer, and trans musical theater actor turned poet laureate, turned playwright, turned screenwriter, and director from the lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute, colonially known as Denver, Colorado. Sullivan's work is often referred to as, quote, love poems addressed to people in our community we are conditioned to forget. Black, indigenous, Asian, queer, and trans people of color those experiencing homelessness, immigrants, and anyone who is or has been incarcerated. Outside of theater, they are a 2021 Almanac Screenwriters alum and have written librettos with composer Jack Frerer for the Arapaho Philharmonic and Albany Symphony. Nick Hadikwa Moloko, Black, African, non-binary, trans, queer, Tanzanian-American award-winning playwright, Nick Hadikwa Amoloko is a third culture queer raised in East and Central Africa who currently lives in the United States. Nick is a nominated member of the nationally accredited Playwright Foundation's RPI, Resident Playwright Initiative. Nick was a member of the Public Theater's Emerging Writers Group, Crowded Fire Writers Lab, and countless other residencies. Nick has also dramaturged for the National Conservatory Theater Center in San Francisco. Nick graduated magna cum laude from Columbia University and was a Point Scholar, the largest global LGBTQI scholarship foundation, during Nick's entire MFA also at Columbia University. Nick's plays have been produced in New York City, New Jersey, Florida, Berkeley, San Francisco, Wisconsin, Paris, South Africa, Italy, and other countries. Roger Q. Mason, they, them, is an award-winning writer, performer, and educator known for using history's lens to highlight the biases that separate rather than unite us. They are an honoree of the Kilroy's List, the recipient of the Chuck Rowland Pioneer Award, the Fire This Time Festival Alumni Spotlight, and the Hollywood Fringe Festival Encore Producers Award, and a finalist for the Geffen Writers Room, Lark Playwrights Week, and the Screen Craft Play Award. Mason holds degrees from Princeton University, Middlebury College, and Northwestern University. They are a member of Page 73's Interstate 73 Writers Group, the co-host of Sister Rogers' Gaberhood podcast, and the co-founder slash lead mentor of the New Visions Fellowship. All right. Roger, Nick, Ayla, welcome. We're so excited to have the three of you here. We usually start the podcast by asking our guests to share their name, pronouns, and anything else they'd like to share about how they identify. Uh, Ayla, we'll start with you and then go to Nick and Roger. Awesome. Uh, hi. I'm so excited to meet you both and be here. My name is Ayla Sungji Sullivan. I use they, them pronouns. When you're feeling spicy, I do love a he, him, my way. Uh, and other ways that I, I uh, identify that I love to say is I am a black and Vietnamese, queer, non-binary, trans, light-skinned gremlin. And uh, <laughs> that's the best way to talk about me. <laughs> love it. Thank you. Oh, hi, I'm Nick. Uh, my pro- Nick Hariko Maluko. My pronouns are he, then, or none. Um, or Nick, uh, I'm, uh, how do I identify? I think it's a writer, 
uh, self-identified as a writer and artist and someone who's just interested in language words, theater, uh, queer theater in particular. And I'm trans. Well, hey there. My name is Roger Q. Mason, and I identify by they, them pronouns. And I'm really happy to say that I have made it official because in at least in the state of California, and once I get to New York, I'll also do the same. I was lucky enough to choose the non-binary option for my pronouns on my ID. And it was really a, a significant turning point because I now have to be contended with as my true self, a black, pansexual, plus size, gender non-conforming person of color. Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations. So you're all part of the inaugural New Vision Fellowship, uh, and that's a partnership with the National Queer Theater and the Dramatist Guild, uh, and it's specifically for black, trans, and gender nonconforming playwrights. Uh, so Roger, can you tell us how this program came to be and how you got involved? So the National Queer Theater, uh, particularly Adam Odsess Rubin, called me about a year or a year and a half ago in the height of our social revolution. And he asked me, what can we as a theater do to support the cause of trans and gender nonconforming playwrights? Because they are our most underserved creative resource in the theater business. And I said, give us work, give us mentorship, and give us time and space and opportunity to just be. And he we the fellowship took on a couple of different incarnations and changed hands in terms of who would be our co-sponsor a little bit. There were different versions and plans, but the Dramatist Guild was always a, st- a staunch supporter of what we were doing. And so we took a couple of meetings with the wonderful Emmanuel Wilson, who took us under his wing. And so this fellowship is a joint effort between the National Queer Theater and the Dramatist Guild of America. And its aim is to prepare the black, transgender, and gender nonconforming playwright, not only artistically, but also professionally and, and, and really economically, entrepreneurially to compete in the marketplace and fare favorably amongst their peers. Because I'm not just interested in providing a space for folks to create work without some follow through. What do you do after you've written a play? How do you then, how do you then propel that piece as a vehicle towards visibility and towards some sort of action and support, not only for that play, but for your work? And so we have a dual purpose here. Train the imagination and train the business muscle. And so by the time these two get out of our doors, they will be, oh, they already are a force to be reckoned with. And also they will be the entrepreneurs with the confidence, the savviness, and also the know-how to sustain themselves for the years and years to come after they leave the program. Amazing. Thank you so much for walking us through that and what an incredible 
program to establish and much needed, Mm -hmm. it sounds like as well. Um, For Ayla and Nick, what is the structure of the fellowship and how has it been supporting you so far? Uh, Let's start with Ayla and then move on to Nick. Sure. Uh, Well, I think first and foremost, you know, support is the core of this fellowship Um, and support not only, uh, you know, as Roger was sort of alluding to about like institutional support and having, you know, the, the business and understanding the business mindset of that and knowing that we have people we can turn to, um, in a, you know, professional way, but truly creating a real understanding of one another as people in addition to being artists. I feel that often times uh, personhood is removed from artistry. And so to be with two amazing black people, black trans and queer people, I always feel that my personhood um, is not only celebrated, but supported and that the, the main structure of uh, the fellowship is really to be in a space with fellow queer and trans people who are artists, um, who we don't have to explain what it takes to come into a room, um, and to be our, our fullest selves and being able to like truly create that space, um, and get to know each other and decolonize the, uh, the process of, of professional work and starting from a real, um, um, like embodied approach, uh, despite I use embodied, um, uh, in a, in a different sort of way. Cause you know, we've been on zoom, but <laughs> um, living through a pandemic, uh, but, but you know, um, to, to really engage in creative work and conversation first, um, and then moving to say, okay, now what do you want to create? Instead of saying, let's put the product at the beginning. Um, I think is, is the best way to understand the structure of the program that it really is the self and the artist first, um, and how do we continue working with each other um, and creating like a horizontal um, foundation instead of hierarchical? Because I do feel the way that Roger mentors us is as a really beautiful way, and that we're not um, we're not like the the lesser than or in a smaller position. That it really is um, in a in a colleague sort of fashion, and that we learn um, symbiotically from each other, um, and that. That is the most important into being able to receive notes from one, you know, one another and also continue to create work together, even though, um, Nick and I are creating separate plays. It does feel like we are creating community together, uh, dreaming vision together. Um, so I would say that that's how it's structured. Nick, would you like to add anything or maybe speak to the collaborative process that Ayla was mentioning? Yeah, it's, it's always great to have, uh, the queer community with black people. It's so rare, uh, in general, and it's also rare as artists. Um, it's rare to be celebrated, um, in that regard. And it's, it's, it's very rare to have, um, a platform that, uh, I think one of the beauties of the fellowship is also that, um, insofar as our work and our presence as queer artists of color and queer black artists, trans black artists in particular, uh, is in the theater. Also what Roger and Ayla and Adam and National Queer Theater is doing is saying um, that we don't want you to filter your truth in order to enter into the industry and the marketplace. 
but rather by telling your, the fullness of your truth, you're going to be very instrumental and very supported so that you actually decolonize all the things that have kept black and trans playwrights, not just at the margins, but erased and invisible and working within erasing spaces. The affirmation that Roger gives us as a mentor um, is not just uh, by creating a horizontal structure, but also by saying that, no, I want you to go all the way. And so if you have issues or something, uh, Roger is always the first one to say, look, um, this is scary, this is dangerous, but that's the reason why it's powerful and potent. you got to go there, you got to ex- be vulnerable, you got to whatever. And that's actually quite the opposite of the industry, which is run primarily by um, the ethos of white supremacy, where we're supposed to erase ourselves in order to be quote-unquote included. So just sharing space with these amazing artists, but also being encouraged to be brave, being being encouraged to be dangerous, fierce, fearless, queer, unapologetically so, um, and to just be our fullest selves and bring that to the work and to the space um, is just affirming and creating. And we we do have the belief that um, uh, we're not the only ones, it's not a monolithic, but that we're going to decolonize um, the erasing spaces that are, that currently is the American theater. Let me say this. Before we read a single word of anybody's work each session, we have what I call a soul session, which is literally just the three of us in dialogue about some civic topic or cultural phenomenon that might be vexing or inspiring or intriguing in some way. And all we do is talk. And that talk and the mental process of allowing our thoughts to be manifested in community before one another is an Olympic feat. The muscularity, the nimbleness, but also the peace and comfort of being in space as intelligent and intelligible beings for us as transgender nonconforming black people. I say to these two all the time, how lucky are we that we get to be in a space where we can just talk and dream and think. How often do three black transgender people have such a luxury? And the answer to that question is never. (laughs) Period. (laughs) Yeah. And I I hope that's changing. And I hope, you know, this program is just the start of having more spaces like that. And can you folks tell us about the actual shows that you're working on and uh, when we might be able to see them? Uh, Nick, do we want to start with you? Sure, yeah. Um, It's called Silence is a Sound. It's about a intimate the uh uh intimate par- partner abuse between a black trans femme and a black man who identifies as they both actually identify as heterosexual and maybe even heteronormative and it's it's about their um individual healing processes um at, with the relationship and coming back together and, and um 
I, I would say the divine forces that intervene to, um, I don't know, reveal their full selves to themselves, as I suppose. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's what it's about. Ayla, do you want to share about your show? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of creating space and all, um, and trying to change the, the landscape for uh, black trans folks. My play is called For Colored Niggas or Who Gonna Beat My Ass? You won't. I'm too scary. And it's called that because I'm tired of people asking me who I write for. So I decided to just make it very clear who I write for. Um, and, you know, it is uh, heavily inspired and repurposing um by uh, neo-futurists movements and also uh, the early happenings of the 1970s. Uh, and it's basically a work and uh, uh, that seeks to um, sort of answer the question of like, how do you make, how do you make theater for the people by the people? And in this case, for niggas by niggas. Uh, so uh, it's, it's really like a series of, um, different love letters um, to people who have ever felt, and specifically black people who have felt uh, excluded, um, whether if they're too too gay, too trans, uh, too niggly for other black people. Um, and especially in my case of, uh, in my intersections of identity, um, you know, what does it mean to uh, be someone who is black that is not loved also by black people in whatever way, whether it's because I'm, Vietnam, I'm, I'm additionally Vietnamese um, or because I'm gay or because I'm trans. Um, what, what is that? What does that mean? Uh, so yeah, it's a night of laughs and joy and also um, what it, what we have to go through in order to get joy. Um, and uh, I hope everyone uh, who's meant to be there shows up. <laughs> and that, that'll be, um, we're a part of the uh, Afrofuturism Festival at Carnegie Hall uh, in the city in New York. Um, so that'll be February 21st of next year. Oh, it's so exciting. Thank you. I, Black I, History I, Month is going up. Okay. I just, <laughs> I just, I just want to emphasize. Mm-hmm. The girls are going to be playing Carnegie Hall. Yes. <laughs> That's huge. We, That's amazing. Right. I mean, just imagine what it means for us and our ancestrin that we are in that organization's limelight. Just imagine the journey. Imagine if you told Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, tomorrow we are going to be doing a show amplifying our people at Carnegie Hall. They'd have a stroke and die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just the journey and the story. It it really is how a festival about Afrofuturism, dreaming the future of black identity should end. You know, at the end of the month, I, I cannot tell you what a tremendous honor it will be for us. I will be happily emceeing these two. We're actually writing a script for this showing and it's going to be a non-hierarchical uh, joint effort. And so we're going to be crafting a an event specifically for the audiences of this Carnegie Hall program 
And we really are excited for everybody to see it in February because it'll come from our spirits. That's incredible. And we'll be sure to put all the information out in the world as you share it with us (laughs) as we get closer to February. That's so great. And I guess building on that, Roger, we could jump back to you um, about kind of what your hopes are for the future of this fellowship. It's already in its first year and all these incredible things are happening. So what do you see as you continue down the road with the fellowship? Well, the proof is in the pudding. And I think that the reality is this fellowship will live and die by the longevity of the careers it has fostered. And so for me, the ultimate gift would be knowing that Nick and Ayla are writing plays that are getting produced, not only in this country, but in the world, and that they are able to sustain themselves as artists, both artistically and financially, through living lives in the creative arts. That would be the ultimate testament to the to the effectiveness of the program in this first year moving forward i'm really excited to see what other writers we will learn about because you know the myth of the in uh, unavailable or non-existent trans black playwright is just that a myth 43 people applied to this program that self-identify as transgender or gender non-conforming. That means that there are 45 writers who could, should, and and really need to be programmed on America's stages. 45 new plays that I had the chance to read. Alone, that could fill at least one, two, three seasons of so many theaters. So as we continue to build this fellowship, what I'd like to do is continue to create a database where programmers, lit managers can look to this list and know who's out there. And then, of course, we will continue to refine and enhance our programming, you know, internally, the types of speakers that we bring, the the opportunities for workshop and showcase that we will provide for our writers as well as the opportunities for partnership with theaters that we'd like to continue building on. So these are some of the things that are, that are in the works, but the most important thing I think is just the day-to-day interaction and that will remain the same. And, you know, there may come a time where I will not be the only mentor or I may take another role. But I know for myself that I always want to be a part of the dialogue with these writers because the power of this program is seeing people blossom, seeing them find the beauty and majesty of themselves just through having its brilliance reflected back to them by somebody else. You know, what Nick and Ayla are describing of our sessions as this non-hierarchical uplift program is just really very simple. I came up as a writer and did not have a lot of folks who could read or understand what I was writing or how I was writing it. And I found myself when Adam Odsess Rubin called me craving to be that person for somebody else because I knew how estranged and lonesome and ultimately discouraged I felt when I was writing while queer, because that's a very particular aesthetic, queer 
storytellers and stories take on completely different shapes because we exist in an, an entirely different world from the straight world. And so our stories reflect that new world. And so for me, I had to invent mentorship. I had to create opportunities to be loved and appreciated and affirmed. And I said, let me just give this to people because ultimately that's what helped me get by knowing that I was somebody and that somebody saw me. It's really that simple. And that's one element of this fellowship that will always remain. Our mission will always be to affirm and to love and to encourage because that's ultimately all these writers need. Yeah. It sounds like such an amazing community you're building with this program. And I'm sure you're all stay involved with it as, as the years go on too, which is exciting. So we, we got a chance to check out the, the beautiful conversation you had with Peppermint, uh, that was called <laughs> dreaming the queer future and it's still on YouTube. So everyone should also check that out. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful conversation and, it seems like for all of you, like spirituality and connection to ancestors is such an important aspect of your artistry. So how does, how does your relationship to spirituality interact with your queerness and then your writing as well? Uh, and I'll, I'll leave that open to whoever wants to grab it. Uh, I, I could definitely speak to that, um, because I think it's important to also talk about my trans identity as a spiritual identity specific to, uh, Vietnamese, uh, Lit my Vietnamese lineage, which is, uh, I am Hao Dong, which, uh, in Vietnam is a specific gender identity, which basically, uh, is, uh, that we do not have a gender because we honor all of the ancestors who live inside of our body. And when you are an open vessel in that way, you are also, uh, you serve a very specific role in the community to channel uh, the past and, and, and all of your ancestors, um, for your, for your community so that the ancestors can live and breathe and speak. Uh, and in this way, um, proves that, you know, um, trans people have existed since the beginning and have existed to have a role in the community to tell story and to be historians and documentarians. Um, and that is, is a spiritual act. And for me, uh, to have that knowledge and have that, you know, as part of my um, trans experience, I think I cannot create and make work in the theater without making sure the intimacy to, to spirit and to the divine is known and clear. Uh, to me, theater is a ritual. It means mm. that it is not simply of myself, that it goes and extends outwardly. It is an offering. It is a gift. Um, and therefore must be in dialogue, um, with, with the audience. So in order to engage the audience, you have to engage them spiritually. Um, this pushes up against the notion that queer and trans people are not holy or that queer and trans people have no divinity and are uh, sinful or, um, in any, you know, some whatever dehumanizing way that we've been talked about. Um, we are the most spirit filled. We are conduits of divinity. Um, we are, we are our ancestors made flesh, you know? Mm. And so to enter a space knowing that live performance 
is is meant to be a conduit for that change, for that inner world to be seen um, and to experience it in a community uh, based setting. Like I, I can't divorce that from my queerness. Um, spirituality is is inherently queer for me, and queerness is inherently spiritual. Um, and so there's no way to create work about my life, about the people I love, um, the people who harm me, the people I have harmed, um, and create like a language of forgiveness without understanding spirituality and without understanding that I um, could not do this if I didn't have a, a connection to spirit, that like I am, I am a channel um, for my ancestors and the stories of my lineage by breathing. <laughs> um, and I've chosen this specific path because it is my purpose here. Um, and that is, is, is because of, of speaking to my ancestors constantly. I mean, even as I'm talking to you, like my altar is behind me. So I think, you know, my ancestors are watching me talk about them, uh, which is like the way I like to live in general is just knowing like I'm always being watched. So I got to show out, uh, for my people. <laughs> Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. Uh, Nick and Roger, did you want to add anything? There's a, well, I, I would just say that um, to me, there's a, it's a, there's a global agenda. It's not just the United States, the American theater, but there's a global agenda to completely annihilate trans people and black people. And so how are we here? How did, how did people of color, Jewish people, how did, how did the people who were complete, you know, how women, how was it possible for those annihilating forces not to succeed? The system is designed to erase those people. They cannot, those bodies, they can't use for free and make money off of through enslavement, colonization and resources. So how are we free to a certain extent, or I should say not free, but how are we liberated? How is this possible? It couldn't have been possible unless there were mighty forces working towards our liberation, our freedom. It couldn't be possible. And those forces are larger than we are. And those are the ancestors. So our existence doesn't have to be justified in any other way. It's a miracle that we are here. As queers, as queer people of color, the Jewish community, women, there's a global agenda to annihilate us. Whenever... There is a Trump everywhere. It's not, and that's just a metaphor or a personification. So I, you know what I mean? Like that's just so, but that's the actual agenda that's in place. That if we cannot use your transness or your queerness to make profit, we will erase you. And we don't want the fullness of your identity. That's the last thing we want. We want to be able to subsidize it, compartmentalize it, erase it, shape it, and shape the narrative so that we can consume it, we can digest it, we can make it simple, etc., etc. But most importantly, we can make profit from it. That's anti-the ancestors. That's why we're here. We're here to actually say that, no, the fullness of our existence is supported by a divine force. That's number one. Number two is people of color have always had a different and spiritual relationship to gender. The reason it's not known in the West is because colonization has made it a lifestyle thing and not a spiritual thing. You go to India, 
they have a completely different relationship to transits. You go to Africa to the village, they have a completely different relationship to transits. It is divine. It is the closest we are to God. And it's not questioned. But once it becomes a colonial Western thing, it becomes about binary, mm-hmm. hyphens, mm-hmm. lifestyle, how you have sex, body parts. Mm-hmm. Again, compartment, compartment, compartment. Why? Capitalism, to make money off of it. Mm-hmm. So that the more hyphens I have, the more sponsorship I get in the art industry. Woo! Okay. You say that. So it's, okay, you say that. This is not who we are, right? Yeah, so, so I think that it's, so the honoring of the ancestors is organic only because it is as Ayla said, it is as Roger said, it's, it's organic to who we are. We wouldn't be here unless there were larger forces at work. And remember, the world is always powered by that which you cannot see. The invisible manifests the visible. It's mm. never the other way around. Mm-hmm. We've got powerful forces working towards us. And our work as people of color and queers of color, we, and most importantly, actually artists, because artists, that's really where the artist is born. In that realm, we, we come in with a trauma that we can only work through with the divine. There's no other, because nothing else is going to heal it. So, and the queerness, it's not necessarily, it, it isn't really a trauma. It's a trauma because we live in a world where we're not divine and we are divine. So we're constantly working to create systems, unfortunately, and relationships, fortunately, where our divine nature comes through. But it's organic to who we are as an artist, as a queer, as trans, whatever hyphen you want to put in it. It's actually minus, 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 minus. All the hyphens are minus, minus, minus. And if you reverse them and put plus, 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 it equals God. Mm. That's who we are. And people don't want to say it because it sounds... Trumpish and monolithic and monoatheist, mono mono theology. It's not about that. It's mm-hmm. God has no gender. Mm-hmm. God is not interested in the body as destiny. God doesn't want to have uh, these things scripted and put up. So we're the manifestation mm. of that truth. And when you go to mm. other areas of the world outside the West, mm. that's who we are. But when you get to colonialism, the city centers, when you get to those areas where the West has colonized the brain and brainwashed us and whatever, and white supremacy reigns supreme, we are reduced to the criminal identity that that we're trying to Uh, escape from so uh, they can make money. uh, That's not who we are, though. And that's not who we are. And it's going to come through. Now, you see what we do every... You see what we do? (laughs) You see what we, you see what we you see what we you see what happens whenever we meet every other Saturday. <laughs> oh, I wish I could be a fly on the wall for all those conversations. Yeah, <laughs> let, I, let let me let me be controversial. Now I cannot speak to why the white colonizer would instill the fear of queerness in his own people. But I can speak to why he would instill the fear of queer love in the black body. And I need to take us to slavery. The black body had a value in volume. The more slaves I had to work, the more free labor I had. And if you could invent some way 
by which you could not only encourage, but also force and mandate people to feel that it was their divine duty to procreate so that your children would inherit the same <laughs> the same bondage. Wouldn't you create some little religious system that says, oh no, when, when non-procreative sex, oh, you're going to hell for that. You better come on and create some babies. And by the way, the minute that that child comes out of that womb, I'm going to train that child to be subservient to me. Why? Because I am Father God on earth as far as you know. And as long as you're subservient to me, there'll be a place where you can be free elsewhere. You can't be free in this world. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I mean, they took the humanity. If you're talking about procreation, it wasn't procreation in the way of family. It was procreation in the way of property commodity which is still how we as not even talking about the black body but as black people we are seen everything that we produce is still commodity is still to be bartered and sold and when it's the extension of self and the extent right like that is different than procreation because procreation has agency has humanity on top of it sexuality has agency on top of it to completely they you know, still today you can see how white supremacy views black people not as human, as object, Correct. as animal to, you know, they were breeding us. They were not treating we, us we as were, people. We were you know. forced to fornicate. Exactly. So it makes sense then. It makes sense then That's right. that black queer love exists in a space that is feared and scorned and Mm -hmm. made invisible because bigotry Mm -hmm. works best once massa Mm -hmm. leaves and you start policing Mm -hmm. yourself. That's right. The most dangerous Mm -hmm. thing in the world, Mm -hmm. the most dangerous mindset in the world is black Mm self-hate. When you start replicating and propagating the ideas of your subjugator. Right. Mm -hmm. You have completed the cycle. The Mm -hmm. work has been engendered and they can walk Mm -hmm. away and move on and know that the plantation will continue to be in divine order Mm -hmm. because now they've done exactly what Nick is suggesting. They have colonized your mind, your spirit, and what Ayla was saying, your personhood. And so we are on a journey as writers, as innovators of culture, as leaders of the future love sex world that is to come. We are on a journey to unspool the hate that we have been taught to feel is the only way we can live in this world. Mm-hmm. We have to do it one monologue, one scene, one rhyme, one physical theater act, one happening at a time. But it is our duty because we have been given second and I would say third sight because we are the transgender, gender expansive beings that can see not only in the world of the world, but above the world. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. exist in a space that is truly divine. Mm -hmm. 
We have been touched by spirit and we are the ones lonesome, hated, feared, troubled, criminalized as we may be. We are the ones that actually have the key to the, to the kingdom. Why? Why? Let me tell you why. You ready to know why? Y'all ready to? Because we have made a world. We have made a world despite all impediments, foreign and domestic, internal and external. Still, we have risen. Mm -hmm. We have invented music. We have invented dance. We have invented architecture. We have invented, invented civic structure. We have invented mathematics. We have invented invention. Mm-hmm. We, the queer people of the world. And mm-hmm. I'm not just looking at color. I'm looking beyond color. Some of the greatest innovations that mankind knows, humankind, have been created by people on the floor. Mm-hmm. People who have been mm-hmm. thrust into the deep, dark corners of queer shame because they don't comport with what you think they should be doing to stay in normative society. I ain't got time for that. And none of these other folks no. in this room do either because we ain't never been able to fit into nobody's box. And thank goodness we survived the womb. And thank goodness we survived our adolescence. And thank goodness we survived our 20s. What, honey, Ayla, baby, you still working. You still working on it. <laughs> we lived to tell the story. Yes. Ashe. Because how many didn't make it? That's right. How many are living? How many are still living? Yeah. But dead inside. Because hmm. there's plenty of folks dead right now. There are so many people in existential palliative care. They're on a slow march toward demise. Maybe not in body, not yet, but certainly in spirit. Mm. So we are fortunate. Mm -hmm. Ayla, Nick, Holly, Megan, and I, we are fortunate. Because we're on this show right now. And we can speak. And we can think. And we can express ourselves. That's a gift. And so the journey that we're on is a journey of preparing the road for the next generation. Because that's what we have to do. That is the price you pay to occupy space as a transgender expansive person in this world, if you are lucky enough to survive. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm just like getting full body mm-hmm. chills over here. I know. <laughs> I, I got goosebumps so many times throughout your com- yeah. your conversation with Peppermint, and now they're just they're back. <laughs> yeah. Y'all, we're gonna need another episode. Like, I said, yeah. we can't, we can't it all. It's so good. 
So one more question before we move on to kind of our ending portion of the show. Um, I feel like it kind of leads well from where we just were. So how do you try to bring light and joy to your queer and trans characters in your writing? Uh, Nick, how about we start with you and then we can move over to Ayla. That's a hard question. For me. Uh, yeah, if you do, <laughs> I don't, well, well, I think, uh, in most of the plays there, it's given to another queer character who's, uh, trusted and it's sort of a, I think it's more of a release than, um, I'm trying to think. I think I, that's how it, it often comes off. Um, I did write like a scene, uh, the other day where, uh, it was given to, a. It was odd. It was given to a straight character and the straight character gave it to the queer character. That was a lot different than normally. Um, but they were still blood relatives. So I still think that the trust factor was, was kind of there. And I think the joy, um, uh, I don't know them. I don't, I, I think this is a, maybe this is a downer or a non-ticket sailor or I don't know, whatever, but I don't know that I center joy as much and, that thing as much as I center, um, uh, to me, the whole integrity and the dignity and the whole, um, being carrying the responsibility that I think Ayla and, and Roger spoke to in the last response is a little bit more, um, what I, I, I think I, I center a little bit more. I'm not sure they, I mean, I, in some of the plays that have had been a little bit more popular, I think that the, the idea of dancing and singing and all that has been there. And it's been, um, I think specifically of they, they, them and, and Wafka. It's been, the funerals have been more African funerals of like you're carrying the body in a Mercedes Benz. You know, the coffin is a made Mercedes Benz by the village and you can carry it to the ancestors and that kind of, and people, you know, and it's fun and it's joyful and people are kind of giving different narratives of the life of the character or whatever. But, um, for the most part, I don't, I think that it, it kind of more is, uh, post struggle negotiations. And then you arrive at this moment where, um, circumstances aren't as important as a shift in perspective. And whether or not that leads to joy, I'm not sure. And I don't know that I prioritize. I have to be honest. I don't know that I prioritize that as much. I, I just, my assumption is that maybe this is what, this might be what dates me. I don't know. But my assumption is that if you're queer, you have the emotional muscle and want to exercise it in the theater to see things and know things and, and absorb a truth. That, necess- that comfort and joy and happiness might not be the end result. But that knowledge and that affirmation should bring that about. So I, that's kind of like where I'm coming from, that holding up that mirror is enough. But I, I also understand why the entertainment value and the happiness and the joy are important. I just don't think now where I am that I've ever really sent, I don't think I've ever really centered, I've never really thought in my head, okay, this is, too much for the audience. If anything, I'm like more, more, mm-hmm. more, which is a problem. But um, not a problem. <laughs> yeah. So I just I don't know. But I but I do. <laughs> it's always like more, more, more. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
and the reason I say I, I need that is I think um, so much of what's going on now in terms of the larger media run and dramatic institutions is this idea of representation can actually happen in the queer community, in the trans community in particular, but the trans community of color. Mm. And I'm like, no, there's we have 5 billion people on the planet and we only have really... Mm two official genders. There's a problem there. Yeah. And that problem leads to a lot of pain. And that problem leads to a lot of trauma. And I think people, I, I just, I'm like, representation is anti-trans. But it's mm-hmm. so pro the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know that that answers the question a little bit, but I'm kind of like frustrated with, okay, you've got one or two, it's a tipping mm-hmm. point, um, whatever, whatever, whatever. That's mm-hmm. not even to factor in the archives and the history and whatever. So what's the short answer? The short answer is I don't know that I do, but maybe I should be thinking about it more because I think it is important. Um, I don't know what, and maybe it is a vital ingredient and I need to think about it more. Mm-hmm. So it's a great question. I, I, I want to continue off that train of thought with, with Nick because I, I think part of the way that we talk about joy um, is problematic. I think that... Uh, so often when we are asked, like, uh, and th- this is like, no tea, no shade tea, Megan. I just mean the, no, the larger <laughs> question of like, how do you write black joy or black trans joy, black queer trans joy, right? The joy there assumes that our joy is in the same vein, is in the same chamber as white joy. Ooh. Because white, white joy Ooh. is assimilationist. Joy mm. that that people who are in power because of white supremacy get will never be what our joy looks like. Uh, a lot of time people, people talk about like, Oh, I'm so tired of hearing these coming out stories that are so sad. We want a slice of life. We just want to see like, yeah, I'm not always sad and period bestie. But here's the thing <laughs> is that your joy is always in conversation mm. with horror. Your joy as a, as a black queer trans person, my joy yeah. is always in conversation with the pain I've had to experience. My joy comes from liberating myself from pain. So in order to Ooh. talk about joy, I cannot talk about, or in order to really experience joy, I have to talk about why my joy is so dangerous. Earlier, Roger brought up slavery, and it's important to talk about laughing barrels in in conversation with black trans joy. Our joy was so dangerous in the plantation that we had to hide it. We were forced to hide it and literally put our laughter in a closed space that was private called laughing barrels. When people say it's a barrel full of laughs, it's because we used to literally have to put our heads inside of barrels to hide our humanity. Mm-hmm. So that people wouldn't feel so bad about enslaving us. Because, and here's, here's the, the flip of that, right? Is that it was, it had to become like a mandate on plantations to do this to black people because we are so filled with joy. That means that there was joy on the plantation. That means that on the plantation, all of us was cutting up making jokes, surviving, because our joy is part of survival, mm-hmm. right? So when you talk to me about and ask me questions about joy, right, it, it is an, a complete intimacy with the survival uh, of, of our transness, of our queerness, right? And so to me, 
joy isn't necessarily like roasting my friends <laughs> and laughing and giggling because that's part of it, right? But the roasting comes from the fact that you can look at your your loved one and say, you think you're you're all that, right? In conversation to all these other things. Like it's saying like, oh, I see you. I can I can bring you down a peg and make fun of you or I can highlight you and uplift you because this is the only place we will actually get it. It is the only place that we are seen. We see each other. We see what's happening, right? And when you have that that really well-oiled machine of perception going on as black people, um, that's the joy, is understanding when you're visible and when you're invisible. There's no way that a white person will ever experience that type of joy, Re- regardless if they're queer or trans, right? Because you will never, you'll never see what we actually go through even if you're also, um, to some level oppressed, right? But your mm. oppression is rooted. Your oppression is rooted in how can I uh, gain more, gain more capital? Mm. Our oppression is rooted in how can we gain humanity? Mm. There's a very different struggle. Mm-hmm. There's a completely different struggle. And therefore, our joy is not going to be the same because our joy is coming from the few times we get to be human, mm. whereas everyone else is afforded humanity before us. So for me, when I write about it, I have to just say the truth. I have to say the truth, which is most of the time, joy is an intimate, quiet thing that you build in a glance, a look, the way that we know how to code switch, um, you know. Uh, and it's also sometimes for me, the joy comes from what is the most extreme, outlandish, absurd way to talk about the horror that has happened to me. Mm. You know, um, for instance, like, uh, my, my thesis, uh, when I was getting my master's is, is, um, a, a play about how I have survived and lived through six different active shooter situations oh. because of being from Denver, Colorado. The very first happened when I was 12 years old. And instead of being afraid of dying, I was afraid of dying a virgin. And the whole musical <laughs> is me talking about how am I going to fuck everyone in my class, <laughs> right? Before... <laughs> Before I die. <laughs> that is the most joyful thing I have written in a long time besides this piece that I'm working on for this, right? But, uh, and the piece is called Lockdown Cockdown. Um, and it's still in the face of the most horrific thing. And not even the most horrific thing that happened to me. Because I'm black and trans. That's like number 2000 on the list of horrible things that happened to me, right? Mm. And even that, like I have to laugh to talk to you about it. You know, you, you, you said something really quite revealing, which is other people, meaning our audiences, looking back to us and saying, oh, we are tired of hearing all these sad stories. This is not McDonald's. Yes. <laughs> I this don't. McDonald's. I, I am not. I am Have not made to order. <laughs> Yeah, I, you ain't gonna get it your fucking way because this is my world and you just paying ticket prices no. to sit in it. You know, let me tell you this. Mm-hmm. We are not short order mm-hmm. cooks for somebody else's comfort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. will not be joyful on command and on demand. Mm-hmm. We will mm-hmm. not define our joy or manifest mm-hmm. it or behave it in ways that are mm-hmm. entertaining or intriguing mm-hmm. or exciting or ameliorating mm-hmm. for you. 
Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. am no longer your slave. I yes. no longer live in the deep, dark places where you can basically abuse me sexually and then threaten my life to shut me mm-hmm. up so I can't complain about it later. This is not mm-hmm. the 20s, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 1920s, mm-hmm. or before, or after, or last night somewhere, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is the mm-hmm. thing. We have to own our property and our property is our personhood. We are still fighting to mm-hmm. redefine not being three fifths of a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in our case, because we are transgender nonconforming, I wonder if that percentage is reduced even further in, in the eyes of the conqueror. Oh, you know, it is definitely. <laughs> And then the other, and then the other issue and the other problem is this. What do we do after we are happy? Mm. You know, this is what we talk about. We talk about, we talk in our sessions about the danger of, of, of sedentary black joy. Joy has to be used as a tool towards transformation. Mm -hmm. It can't just be something that gets it. Now, joy is revolutionary mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it is powerful for me to say, despite the erasure, despite the abuse, despite all of the ways that you have tried to silence me, I'm still going to be happy. Mm-hmm. But now what? What happens after mm-hmm. that moment? How do we, how do we mobilize it? How do we strategize and use that joy towards towards ensuring that we can continue to be joyful after that moment? And mm-hmm. I, I often quote my one of my four fathers, believe it or not, Sam Beckett from Waiting for Godot. What am I to say? Gogo says, what am I to say? Say I am happy. I am happy. So am I. So am I. We are happy. We are happy. What do we do now? Now that we are happy. And I ask that question. What do we do now that we're happy? What is the world after we've identified that we are human and capable of joy? How do we now mm-hmm. create a sustainable, what, how do we create a sustainable civic structure mm-hmm. where we can ensure that joy for the next generation and the generation after that? Through mm-hmm. protections, through mm-hmm. visibility, through accountability, mm-hmm. and, and through justice. Mm-hmm. Because yes. joy can't just be a trend. And joy can't just yes. be something that sells $300 tickets this season yes. on a theater yes. stage. Joy mm-hmm. has to be everlasting. And that mm-hmm. means we have to build community. We have to build an army of joy. We have mm-hmm. to take these laughing buckets off, slam them on mm-hmm. the floor, use that fodder, and and mm-hmm. strike a match and burn them motherfuckers up. Mm-hmm. Burn mm-hmm. all them barrels up. Yes. And say, we're going to laugh out loud in your face for so long till your head blows off. And then we're going to laugh mm-hmm. past that. And we're going to mm-hmm. keep laughing. Mm-hmm. as, And we're going to keep laughing as we build businesses together that support us. We're going to keep 
laughing as we put civic leaders in office that are going to represent our actual interests, not their own pocketbooks. We're going to keep laughing until we have every position in a regional theater filled with folks that represent us. We're going to keep mm-hmm. laughing until we have a, a, a healthcare system that doesn't treat us like we are pieces of animalistic shit. Mm-hmm. We are going to keep laughing until we have a spiritual system, not organized religion, but a spiritual system that centers mm-hmm. our humanity and also celebrates our divinity. Mm-hmm. And we are going to mm-hmm. keep laughing until all we can do is laugh and laughter is the norm and the norm is nothing to laugh about because it is just who we are and how we live in the world. And then we'll laugh past that into the stars. That's what we have to do. But we can only do that if we live and work together. And I've always said black trans gender nonconforming solidarity is the key to our survival. Each one, teach one. And I believe one of our wonderful hosts said that at the beginning of this, that that Nick and Ayla will be charged and you will be charged with the task of being mentors too. Mm-hmm. Everything we have learned from each other in these hallowed digital halls of the New Visions Fellowship you now have a divine obligation that you're being held accountable to by the spirits. You have an obligation to pass this on to somebody else because somebody else does not have access to this wisdom. And that's Mm -hmm. how we're going to create this new world. And that's how we're going Mm -hmm. to live in joy and post joy. And that's how we'll sustain it. Yes. Thank you all for those amazing responses. Um, I just want to move us to, we're going to do our final two sections, kind of rapid fire. Um, first, we're going to do queer gifts. So is there yeah, a mutual aid fund, an organization, a person you want to shout out that we can have our listeners donate to? Um, let's do Nick, Ayla, and Roger. Sure. Diamond Styles, and she has a... She's a trans woman who's has a wonderful podcast called Marsha's Plate. And she has also an organization. It's very raw, very real. And I hope you can uplift her work uh, and uplift her and donate and, and do all the things to uplift her. I don't I've never had this much. But I, um, she's amazing. Ayla, you want to go? Yes, uh, I, I want to shout out Fierce NYC. Fierce is doing the work for the children, which mm. we love, mm. uh, especially as educators. I mean, we're all, listen, I came into myself much later in life. I'm still kind of a gaby. Um, but, <laughs> you know, the, the youth, uh, uh, queer identifying, uh, queer and trans youth, uh, and it's uptown, which I really love, um, holding open mics and community building, um, spaces. Really, like, if you know a young person who wants to be in a supportive, like, safe, truly, like, safer space, um, that's what Fear, Fierce NYC does. And I believe they're in the Bronx, which is why I love supporting uptown people. So check them out. We're about to do a start a partnership with them with my uh, the organization I work with. Oh, period! Yeah, I'm so excited. I love that! <laughs> Yay! 
And Roger, you want to go? I do. You know, I, I'm getting chills as I say this. The greatest gift that anybody could give, it, from my point of view, is to donate to the National Queer Theater and specifically earmark the New Visions Fellowship in the memo as to where they'd like their donation to go. Because writers are truly mm-hmm. the innovators of the future. And when you invest in, in a Black, trans, gender non-conforming writer, you're investing in the future of, of civic thought and leadership. And so I would say, if you were to donate to an organization, National Queer Theater, and earmark the New Visions Fellowship. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all. And then rapid fire again, we'll go through how folks can follow you online, either on social or if there is any other uh, info you want to shout out for our listeners. Sure. Oh, it's online. Um, I have uh, Twitter. I'm on Twitter at nmoluko, I think. Uh, Instagram, I think it's nmoluko. Facebook, uh, full name, Nick Hadiko Moluko, and NPX. There are all the contacts are there. Um, y'all can find me on IG, Instagram, Instagreasy. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and my at is at that Blasian Ayla, um, because I made it when I was a middle schooler and I just was like, you know what? We gonna keep it. I don't keep referring to myself as that. <laughs> I really am that Blasian. Um, so yeah, Blasian is how it sounds. And, uh, my website is AylaSullivan.com. Less weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if anyone wants to write to me, if anyone wants to hire me, uh, you can go there uh, and you can be in contact. My Instagram is at Roger Q. My middle name is Quincy, so it's at Roger Q. Mason. My Facebook is Roger Q. Mason. And also my Twitter is at Roger Q. Mason, all one word. I'm most active on Instagram and that's where I have the most fun. So that's probably the best way to find me. And also I have a website, which is rogerqmason.com. Awesome. And where can folks find out more about the fellowship? The fellowship, the best way to learn more about the fellowship is to go on National Queer Theater's Instagram page. All of our updates are go first on there and then they get disseminated out. But also I know that the Dramatist Guild of America on their Instagram also posts about the fellowship and our happenings. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, our next major public showing will be through the Afrofuturism uh, Festival, which is being sponsored by Carnegie Hall. And our performance is going to be on February 21st. And we'll have more details with, with um, you know, the venue partners and all of that um, very soon. Incredible. Yeah, we'll be marking our calendars and hope everyone else does the same. That's awesome. And keep us posted. Like I said in the middle of this interview, I feel like this is not the last <laughs> because we, <laughs> we have so much more we want to talk to you all about. So. Well, thank you so much for having us because you all are truly one of the premier thought leadership podcasts for queer and trans ideas. And so it is a tremendous honor for us to be invited to speak to you all. I I have been a fan of this podcast and your and your ideas about our life for a long time and thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Roger. It's been an honor to talk with you all and, and 
Oh, so many great ideas shared here. Yeah. Thank you so much. We'll be talking soon. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you like, please follow, rate, and review us and share us with your friends. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Thesis on Joan. We love to hear your queer culture recs and ideas for querying the canon. Send us an email at thesisonjoan at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 845-445-9251. Come back for more interviews, fun queer content, recommendations, and discussions on current theater. Until next time, keep it queer. Not that it'd be that hard for y'all to do. (laughs) So Hallback's... Oh, I sound so white saying that. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> oh no. I'm sorry to everyone. Okay. Um, their mission. Oh God. <laughs> He's like, don't do it again. <laughs> so bad the first time. <laughs> Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.